Good afternoon. This is Cedric McCoy, nurse practitioner and the associate director of the Comprehensive Stroke Program at UChicago Medicine and your host for the UChicago Medicine's Community Health Focus Hour. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I encourage you to give us a call, ask your questions, or just make comments. I ask, however, that you please try to limit them to 30 to 45 seconds. The number to call in is the WVON listener call-in line. That number is 312-374-8130. One more time, 312-374-8130. So, There is much about the sexual and reproductive health of black women that goes undiscussed. When it comes to fertility issues, women offer suffering silence and are afraid to seek medical attention and as well as medical treatment. As women move towards perimenopause and menopause, a woman's sense of well-being and sex life can fall apart as many women try to power through this challenging time the same way women generations before them did. In our first segment, we're going to talk about infertility. Back in the day, they used to say that a woman that couldn't become pregnant was barren, like a field that couldn't produce crops. How humiliating is that? But today, 10% of women between the ages of 15 and 44 years of age have difficulty becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. Why is that? In our second segment, we're going to discuss perimenopause and menopause, another situation that women get little guidance for. And despite so many advances in care offered to women approaching menopause, some women often rely on doing things the way that women in the past did and leave excellent options on the table. Again, suffering and silence. And then lastly, in our last segment, we'll talk about some of the general OB-GYN topics that women have questions about, such as childbirth, preeclampsia, fibroids, incontinence. So today we're going to talk about all those unmentionables, and I have two amazing guests with me today, one in studio and one on the line to help educate me as a man and as well as you out there, the listeners. So first up, let me welcome to the show in studio with me is Dr. Monica Christmas, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Director of the Menopause Program, UChicago Medicine. Monica, welcome to the show. Tell us a little about yourself. I've been practicing obstetrics and gynecology over the past 15 years. I specifically now do more gynecologic surgery, so I take care of women with abnormal bleeding, fibroids, and menopause, which is near and dear to my heart. So we'll have a fun conversation today. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate that. Next up is one of her colleagues, Dr. Amanda Adela, uh, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Section of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility, UChicago Medicine. Dr. Adela, are you there? I'm here. Welcome to the show. Tell us a little about yourself. Yeah. So uh, I'm born and raised in Illinois, so this is home for me. But uh, in addition to having experience and training, taking care of women from, you know, delivery all the way through menopause, I did some extra training, um, an additional three years to really hone my craft in taking care of people that experience infertility or other hormonal issues. All right. Well, thank you both so much for being on the show today. And let's dive in. Dr. Della, let's start with you. So you just mentioned infertility. So let's talk about that first. What is infertility and how common is infertility amongst black women as compared to other races? So infertility is defined as the inability to conceive after 12 months of trying if you are part of a heterosexual couple having intercourse regularly. So we think that globally about one in eight people experience infertility that are reproductive aged. In the U.S., the number seems to be around 10 to 12 percent. Overall, it has declined slightly, although amongst women of color, particularly black women, there has actually been an increase in reported infertility. So 
some of the most recent data suggests that women had an increase, black women had an increase in infertility from around 8% to almost 12% in recent years. Why are we seeing that increase? That's a great question. We don't fully know. Um, It could be one of a couple things. You know, in order to be diagnosed with infertility, typically you need to see a physician that will diagnose you or see a provider that will diagnose you. And amongst people of color and African-Americans, often we unfortunately will face some extra hurdles in getting to the doctor and getting to the right doctor and getting that diagnosis. So in other words, what I'm saying is the access to care has been limited for people of color when it comes to fertility. And so, you know, in the last several years, we may have experienced maybe underreporting of fertility issues. And now we're starting to see with an increase in access, the true incidence of infertility amongst African-American women. We talk about statistics and opening, I threw out there 10% of women between the age of 15 and 44. And you too were saying how the numbers increase between like 8% to 12% amongst African-American women. Does this percentage increase significantly as we get closer to that 44? So by that, I mean, maybe it's 10% in women that are 20. And then by the time you're 44, is it significantly higher than that, that we're seeing infertility? Short answer is yes. There is a well-known decline in fertility with age. There are a few studies that really kind of stratify long-term the incidence of infertility by age and by race. But yes, overall, what you're saying is true. And for all women, regardless of race, there is a decline in fertility with time. And particularly after the age of 37, there's an increase in the loss of eggs that contributes to this and an increase in the poor quality eggs that uh, we produce that can impact infertility. Okay. And so what are some of the major causes of infertility, either of you? And does nutrition, lifestyle, or just the timing of a women's cycle play a role in that? So there are several causes. Infertility can be caused by something structural. So, you know, the baby or the embryo is conceived and held within the woman. So if there's an issue with the fallopian tubes, and that can happen because of scarring, then perhaps, you know, um, an embryo may not be able to be created because there's not good access for the sperm to the egg, or the embryo can't easily get to the uterus. There can be a structural issue with the uterus. Something very common to women of color are fibroids, and we know that that can have an impact on fertility. And I want to be clear here that it's not all fibroids, probably a select subset of fibroids that are kind of the problem, but certainly they occur with a higher incidence amongst women of color. Other issues can be male factor infertility, and that's something I think is really under-discussed. About one quarter of the time, if you go through a full workup, the only issue we might find will be a male issue, as in like maybe not enough sperm or poorly moving sperm. And I think this is so underreported and so it's not discussed. And uh, often the woman in the relationship gets blamed for the inability to conceive when in reality it's a male issue. Others would be the issue with being able to release an egg on a regular basis. So ovulatory issues about Eight to 10% of women have something called polycystic ovarian syndrome, and that can make it very difficult to ovulate regularly. And frankly, there's also a whole group that we think 20, 25% where we don't know what the fertility issue is. We call that unexplained infertility, and often that will take a fair amount of treatment to address. I want to add too, just because it's important to talk about when we talked about scarring of the fallopian tubes, is infection. 
So anybody that's had a previous history of maybe gonorrhea or chlamydia that wasn't treated, or maybe it was treated late, usually those infections start at the cervix and can travel through the uterus and cause scarring in the fallopian tubes. And so, you know, oftentimes when we talk about safe sex, that's not a a factor of it that people are thinking about because it might be that when they were younger, they were exposed to one of those STDs and now they're in their early 30s or mid-30s or whatever, and they want to have a baby, and that infection that wasn't treated previously is a factor. Endometriosis is also a chronic condition that some will experience, and that can also cause some Im- have an impact, just like the polycystic ovarian disease disorder can in infertility as well. Okay, so a lot of things just got brought up there that I want to mm-hmm. dive into. Okay. And one of the things I really want to really address is just the more I'm listening to you, the more I was doing research on this. One of the things that really hit me was, wow, this has to be stressful. And so let's dive in there for a little bit. Let's start first off with the woman side of it. So why are women ashamed to admit this? And why are, do they hide addressing this, addressing their infertility. I'll start with Monica on this one. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the things in in our community, too, is that there is a little bit of a taboo in talking about certain topics, and I think infertility is one of those. There's some shame that can be um, felt, too, because if you're seeing other people around you that maybe are seemingly not having any issues with fertility and you're the only one, that's a heartbreaking kind of a thing, too. I find in particular in practice that oftentimes, you know, when I'm trying to refer patients to Dr. Adela, um, that they'll say, well, that's not um, natural. If I guess if I can't get pregnant on my own, then it isn't meant to be. Um, so sometimes religion is brought into it as well, that this topic of you know, in vitro fertilization, I think that's what everybody jumps to as soon as they think of, I'm going to send you to a, repro- you know, a reproductive right. endocrinologist. But there are so many other things that can be done. Really, it really depends on, too, what is contributing to the infertility. So I always tell people, it's all about education. It's about information. I want you to go and get the information. We're going to do the appropriate workup, and then we'll sit down and talk about what the factors are that may be impacting your inability to start your family in the way that you want. Uh, And I think sometimes that opens the door. But then there's the other factor of if the woman is really willing to go and you can get over that hurdle, oftentimes men don't want to participate. And Mm -hmm. we do need, uh, you know, to make sure that there's not a male factor. There could be an issue with the sperm. And so, you know, if we don't address that issue, then they're still not going to get to that family endpoint as well. Okay, so... Go, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to add to that. Yeah, I mean, everything Dr. Christmas said, I agree with. Um, but Cedric, you know, you really brought up one of the most, you know, important and beautiful points that I think rarely gets discussed. You know, so stress and depression and infertility is actually a niche of mine and something that I've been interested in for a while. You know, I think what I can tell you is when I see patients in my office, you know, not a month goes by where somebody's not crying and they say, everybody else is able to get pregnant. Why can't I? Mm. So I think a part of the reason for like the sadness and shame is also that we don't know each other's stories. We don't talk about difficulties getting pregnant or staying pregnant. We don't talk about miscarriage. And so at the end of the day, all you see is your friend who, you know, is five months along. You don't know if it took them, you know, 12 months. You don't know if it took them two years. You don't know if they had treatment or not. It's often not discussed. And so it's all always made to appear so easy to get pregnant. And so if you can't get pregnant easily, it feels like there's an issue with you. When in reality, 
10, at least 10% of the population has difficulties getting pregnant, including, you know, your friends, family, celebrities, you know, uh, First Lady Michelle Obama, a lot of people have experienced infertility. But, you know, I also wanted to touch on something you said that was incredibly powerful, and that is the stress factor. So we know that people, and so I always want to say people and not just women, because infertility for couples affects both people. So for people, we know that there is an increased rate of depression and anxiety compared to the rest of the population for people experiencing infertility. Subsequently, we know that there are increased marital issues and trauma experienced amongst people that have infertility. And so not only are you now not talking about your trouble getting pregnant, you're having real psychological issues and often have nobody to talk to. Mm. This is an incredibly, incredibly hard thing for patients to go through. Yeah, I can't even begin to fathom that. And what do you... Monica, in terms of, of family members, you mentioned earlier that you do the workup and then you look and say, hey, if I should refer this to one of, to my Dr. Adela, when should a couple come to you and say, hey, I think there may be something going on here and what are my next steps? Yeah, usually we say unprotected intercourse for um, a year. And then again, we're talking about heterosexual relationship. Without um, conception, we would start the workup. However, if you are over a certain age, so usually for patients that are 35 or over, I may say six months of trying, but, and then we will send you for, uh, to a fertility specialist. If though, and that, but that's if you're having a regular menstrual cycle every month. So somebody that's skipping cycles or has some irregularity or has maybe one of those conditions that we talked about specifically, polycystic ovarian disease or endometriosis, or knows that maybe they had an infection in the past and they've been trying for a few months and haven't gotten pregnant, I think starting that workup sooner than later is more appropriate. All right, perfect. All right, interesting segment. Listeners, call in. The number is 773-374-8130. I know you have questions, and when we come back, we will discuss perimenopause and menopause with Dr. Christmas and Dr. Adela. Welcome back. We are here with Dr. Adela and Dr. Christmas, and we are talking about just a, a myriad of, of uh, topics here in terms of infertility, and we're going to dive into menopause in one second. But I want to go to Dr. Christmas really quickly. So the family came here, and now we're going to do the workup. We have to do the test because they've been trying for that year, and they haven't been able to have conceive that child. What do those tests look like? Yeah, well, we want to, one, uh, Dr. Jella mentioned um, kind of the, the things. The fallopian tubes need to be open. The uterus needs to be a hospitable kind of landing zone. The cervix needs to be open so that the sperm can penetrate to get to the egg. And the sperm need to be good swimmers. They need to be plentiful, and they need to be able to live for an appropriate amount of time to get to that egg. So the first part of it is we want to evaluate the, the uterus, so getting an ultrasound to see are there fibroids or polyps that are within the uterine cavity that could be contributing to the infertility, doing a, a test called a hysterosalpingogram or the dye test, some people will call it, to make sure that the tubes are open and patent. Assessing, you know, laboratory findings too, to make sure that the brain is sending the appropriate signals to the ovaries and the ovaries are responding appropriately. So there's a laboratory workup we get. Thyroid dysfunction, prolactin disorders can also contribute to infertility. So that's part of the laboratory workup as well. 
Uh, and then if we're doing all those things, because those are the things that I talked about that we'd be doing to the woman, we also want to evaluate the man. And typically the test that we would do for men is a semen analysis. Okay. And Dr. Della, what are some of the unique difficulties same-sex couples have in trying to conceive? So, you know, thinking about a same-sex couple where it is two people that identify as female, um, often referred to as a lesbian couple, um, the issue is the lack of access to sperm. And so in those cases, couples will think about using donor sperm. Um, and in general, I typically recommend using uh, an agency um, to acquire uh, sperm that's already been vetted, um, often from people that have helped other families to grow to successful sperm donors. And so typically for same-sex female couples or lesbian couples, we would do something called intrauterine insemination. And so we would use one of the partner's kind of natural cycles and then put the donor sperm in at the appropriate time of the month. And that often over the course of a few cycles is usually pretty successful. Sometimes amongst lesbian couples, one person might want to contribute genetically to the child and the other person might want to carry. And in those cases, they could do something like IVF where we take the egg and the sperm and put them together in the lab. And so we could take the eggs from one partner, fertilize them, and then place the embryo into the other partner who would carry the pregnancy. And that's sometimes referred to as reciprocal IVF. For men who are in relationships with other men or gay couples, in those cases, it's a little bit more challenging because they don't have the uterus and they don't have the egg resource. And so in those cases, they typically, if they want to build a family that's genetically related, what I often recommend is IVF with donor eggs. So somebody else contributes the eggs. One of them contributes the sperm, and then they would have a gestational carrier, which is sometimes referred to as a surrogate, to help them and carry the pregnancy. Um, that is a lot of work, but it is absolutely possible, and people do it every day. And then I just want to add one small plug here, because we have a lot to talk about with perimenopause, but we also, you know, see a fair amount of people in the transgender community or people that are not conforming, and special considerations in that community would be for people that are using gender-affirming hormones. Sometimes that can impact your ability to conceive, and so in those cases, we might recommend something called fertility preservation or briefly stopping hormones to get a treatment to help you or your partner get pregnant. Wow, fantastic news there. Okay, so perimenopause, Dr. Christmas. And Dr. Della, feel free to chime in wherever you feel comfortable here too as well. So let's start here first with what is meant by perimenopause and what time frame does that represent, Monica? So perimenopause is that, oh, I'll, I'll start with actually menopause is defined as not having a menstrual cycle for a full year and as a natural menopause. Certainly some women can go through surgical menopause where they have to have their ovaries removed or you can have, whether it be chemotherapy or other radiation therapy or other medications that could cause ovarian premature death that could cause menopause too. But in a natural menopause where your ovaries are naturally stopping functioning, they're not uh, ovulating anymore, that perimenopausal period typically is like the 10 years, seven to 10 years or so before your menstrual period actually stops. And it's characterized by various symptoms too that women will experience. Oftentimes, the first thing that we'll notice is changes in the menstrual cycle. Some women are very lucky. Their periods get shorter, they get lighter, they 
space out and then they just gracefully go away. Other women will notice that their periods get longer, they get heavier, they get closer together, and then there's everything in between. Other symptoms of decreasing hormones, specifically estrogen, are hot flashes and night sweats. In the perimenopausal period, they may come and go. Women will say, I was experiencing them every night for a month, and now I haven't noticed it for three months now. Changes to mood are, are a typical one, too. Some women become more overly sensitive. Maybe they cry about things they normally wouldn't have cried about. Uh, other women notice more anger-like symptoms, and they have a hard time kind of controlling things. And I'll have people telling me that my personal and my professional relationships are being impacted by my inability to kind of control my mood right now. It can be really troublesome for most women. Let me, let me ask mm-hmm. you something there. So you said that there's, it's anywhere between seven, peri- in terms of perimenopause, anywhere between seven or ten years prior to. Yeah. So say a woman starts experiencing some of those symptoms, the hot flashes, the mood swings, or the mood changes, I should say, and it becomes a little bit more frequent. Is it, or let me ask you that first, does it become more frequent as you get closer to menopause? And then once you start seeing those symptoms, are you looking like, oh man, menopause is coming. It's going to be here in like another year, babe. It's like, I'm in trouble. What is, is there a time frame or does it just vary? Yeah. Everybody's different. But the average age of menopause, meaning not having a menstrual cycle for a full year, is about age 51 and a half, depending on what you look at. The range, though, is between age 40 to 58. So you can see that some women will go through menopause sooner, some will go through later than that age 51 and a half. And if you're starting to experience symptoms up to 10 years before that transition, it's not unheard of in your late 30s or early 40s to start having some of those symptoms during the perimenopause. Okay. All right. And so once we start having, well, I said we, when women start having, <laughs> y'all ain't having that. Um, we start seeing women have some of these symptoms. Is there relief? What are the recommendations once they start having those symptoms? And the, I should say that everybody does not experience them the same. So perimenopausal, menopausal symptoms are typically caused from decrease in the estrogen production from the ovaries. And so we have estrogen receptors all over our body and we seemingly like estrogen. So once we're starting to have less estrogen or no estrogen at all, we've experienced symptoms almost from head to toe. You'll notice changes in, in hair. Women will say, my hair seems like it's thinning. My skin is looser. I have more wrinkles. I'm gaining weight. And maybe that was never an issue before. And we tend to gain weight more in the middle section. I'm feeling um, more uh, difficulty with sleeping. And sometimes that's related to the, the hot sweats that are waking you up at night and then you can't get back to sleep. Changes in libido related to hormonal changes as well as well as vaginal dryness that can then contribute to um, libido and sexual function. So, you know, I I probably forgot a couple of things, but I've named a a whole gamut of things. And so some women will experience all of those things, and that's pretty terrible. So we absolutely want to treat them. Some may only have a couple of those things. So usually what I'll do when people come in is to kind of, first of all, what are you experiencing? And Even if somebody's having a hot flash, that might not be the thing that's most bothersome to them. It may be the sexual dysfunction things. And so I get a feel for what's the thing or the things that are most bothersome. And then we start to talk about what are the treatment options from complementary alternative medicine uh, modalities to lifestyle changes, meaning diet, exercise, and really living well, along with prescription things. And that would include hormonal treatment as well. Okay. And so let's go back to lifestyle changes. One of the things, mm-hmm. is, what, what are some of the recommendations that you would throw at them and say, hey, these are some of the lifestyle changes that may be beneficial for you? Yeah. You know, 
regular exercise and being meticulous with the things that we put in our body as we get older in general are just that if there's ever a fountain of youth, that's what's going to be it, right? Yeah. There's not a magic pill that you can take, but certainly taking care to um, taking care of our bodies is really important, especially as we age during that time frame. And with menopause, it seems to be an accelerated aging phase, too, if we're not doing these things. And so one of the first things I like to talk about with people is getting healthier, and, and for, the long, for the long term. So we talk a lot about the Mediterranean diet because that one has been shown to improve not only cardiovascular health but also preserving bone health as well as cognition. And those are things that impact menopausal women as well. Okay. So are women afraid to share with their partners about this? You know, and then what I want to really dive into, if so, what are some of the common fears surrounding sex and menopause? I think a lot of times, especially culturally, we don't always talk about menopause. It's kind of a taboo topic. Um, And so it's hard for um, women to really think of it as it's a true medical condition. So if you had diabetes, it wouldn't be a question about going in and talking to your healthcare provider about how can I get healthier, what treatment can I do to rid myself of the symptoms of diabetes or diabetes in itself, right? So menopause is really no different. It's a clinical diagnosis. It is a natural process, but it also is accompanied by symptoms that may really truly impact a woman's quality of life. And so if you're finding yourself miserable because of this change of life, it's definitely worth it to come in to talk, you know, to a menopause specialist. Because sometimes, too, everybody's not comfortable, especially when it comes down to hormone replacement therapy. And we can talk about that, too. Yeah. Um, I want to dive into that next. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you want to go to see somebody that's really experienced with treating menopausal women so that you can really get a feel for what are the things that you can do. Okay. And let's talk about the fear with cancer. Is it unfounded with women going through menopause? And then let's talk about the medical options, such as hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. So there are a number of large studies, but one, the Women's Health Initiative is is one that many times people will go back to when they talk about cancer risk, specifically breast cancer, but also stroke as well. And so that study looked at the initial intent of the study was to show that estrogen use in particular could minimize the risk of heart disease. And so they took all comers in that study. They didn't just look at women who were just going through menopause. The average age of the women was about 63, 64 in that study. And so they ended it prematurely because women started to have strokes, a particular kind of stroke, or cardiovascular disease, as well as there was an increase in breast cancer association, I should say, with breast cancer and the women that were using estrogen and progesterone supplementation in that particular trial. And so that scared everybody. Yeah. You know, the, the study stopped was early. This is harmful. And so for a, a while, practitioners were not prescribing it and women were scared to go on it. And so now that we kind of step back, there are other studies been done looking at sub you know areas in that particular women's health initiative trial too we saw that oh, when we looked at younger women that were near the age of their last menstrual period it actually was not unsafe for those women to be on hormone replacement therapy mm-hmm. and in fact there are actually some benefits one being a decreased risk in colon cancer so now the pendulum is kind of swung and we say hey look let's look at what age you are too 
So if you're starting hormone replacement therapy within 10 years of your last menstrual period, it's probably relatively safe and has some benefit to you. And then we want to look at contraindications, right? What are the factors that might influence you? Have you ever had a blood clot before? Have you ever had a stroke? Do you have currently have diabetes or high blood pressure? So those individuals might be at an increased risk. And so maybe we would want to use something that wasn't hormonal for them. Likewise, if they have a history or a very strong family history of breast cancer, that might not be somebody that we want to put on hormone replacement therapy, and we may want to look at other alternatives. Okay. So, Dr. Dello, I want to take one quick step back, and as we start wrapping up this segment, I want to dive back into stress, because both of these things that you ladies are talking about, I can see how they impact just the family, you know, the relationships that the couple has. So... Let's talk about the emotional side of both of these things. We'll start with infertility first. Then families come in, they're sitting down with you and they get the news. They're like, hey, right now you've been trying for a year. It hasn't been working. How do you address that? How do you make them feel at ease in a sense of, hey, we got you or, hey, here are the options for you and make them, I guess I'm looking for that hope for them. How do we provide that for them? Yeah. You know, so I will say number one, I have a tissue box ready and waiting in my office and it gets used at least on a daily basis. So I think that more for the listeners that you're aware that, I mean, it really does impact people's quality of life and it's a very emotional process. In terms of, you know, hope, it really depends a bit on the reason for the infertility. And I do want to always be honest and realistic with my patients. And so often, you know, well, there's a will, there's a way. So for many circumstances, we can we can figure out a way to make it work and help you build your family. But sometimes, you know, the conversations are very hard. Sometimes women wait until they're at the end of the reproductive window, you know, maybe 44, 45, and they say, I'm still having periods regularly. That means they can get pregnant. And then, you know, they don't really have the ovarian reserve or resources really to be able to build a family that's genetically related to them. And that is devastating. For very challenging cases and really for everyone, I always offer a reproductive psychologist. People are not really aware that they exist, but there are people who, you know, really specifically manage the kind of psychological and psychiatric issues associated with infertility. So I have a, you know, a virtual Rolodex of people that I can always refer my patients to. And then secondly, there's a really great organization called Resolve, which is a patient arm of the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. And I often will refer patients to Resolve. They have local support groups that patients find beneficial. And then also there's a a group called Fertility for Colored Girls, which um, I think is wonderful as well. So I think networking and finding other people that share their experience can be profound. Um, That that is absolutely fantastic. And so... For women deciding to choose fertility treatment, um, what can they expect the process to be like overall? And I'll lobby it back and forth to you guys in terms of cost. Because, Monica, I can only imagine when I think of infertility clinics, people having difficulty, like dollar signs start hitting my head right away. And like, hey, this is going to cost thousands of dollars. It's going to be, it's going to put you, your credit cards are going to get maxed out. What can they expect? And I'll let you chime in too, Dr. Della. Um, but yeah. if you're in, you know, often I think the first thing would be to, do, to find out what your insurance coverage is. Because sometimes um, much of the infertility workup as well as treatment will be covered. And it may be just that it's your deductible that you're paying. If you don't have insurance coverage, though, it can be extremely costly and prohibitive, especially when we start to talk about some of the. Um, 
fertility uh, issues that maybe same-sex couples are experiencing, um, especially getting a surrogate or, um, you know, sperm isn't as, as expensive as egg donation is, though. And so, you know, Dr. Dell, you jump in and chime in, too, but... Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I think one important thing for the audience to recognize is that um, we're fortunate to, well, many of us are fortunate to live in Illinois. Um, Illinois is one of 17 countries with infertility mandates. What that means is if your insurance originates from the state of Illinois, so your company is based out of Illinois and they provide you with insurance, even employer-based insurance, then they are required to provide you with fertility coverage, and that includes the diagnostics as well as treatment. Now, there is a lot of variation in what that coverage means, but it does, in general, cover a good uh, portion of care beyond, you know, the deductible that you typically would have to pay. Um, So, you know, as Dr. Christmas alluded to, in the event that you don't have employer-based insurance um, or you're, you know, maybe freelancer and, you know, are uninsured currently, it can certainly be more expensive for intrauterine insemination or artificial insemination, which is sort of the kind of baby step for step in terms of addressing infertility. Usually, I would say in the Chicagoland area and probably nationally, it runs about around 1000 to $1,500 per cycle, um, slightly more for same-sex couples who are going to want to get um, donor sperm. Each vial is usually around five to $800. So that would be for intrauterine insemination and people may do, you know, one cycle, they may do four or five six cycles. It sort of depends on the situation. For IVF nationally, it's usually around twelve to $15,000 per cycle, but it can be more uh, depending on what sort of needs you have. But, you know, certainly those are no small numbers and uh, difficult for some people to achieve and they may need to save for that. All right. Yeah. In- interesting segment. Listeners, I see we have two people on the line. I'm going to get to you after the break. When we come back, we're going to pick this up right where we left off and uh, discuss how discuss some of those unmentionables that I talked about earlier in the show. And we are back with our guests, Dr. Christmas and Dr. Adela, and we are going to ask them to talk about whatever they see as unmentionables. But first and foremost, we have a couple people on the line. So first off, we'll start, start with the caller number two, AJ. AJ, are you there? Hi, yes, I am. Hey, AJ, welcome to the show. Thank you so very much. I am a 66-year-old female who last had her menses 16 years ago, so I was probably about 52. I have had not a single sign of menopause. Is that normal, and am I free from ever having any? That is normal for you, and that's fabulous. I wish we could package whatever you've done and sell it. So it it may be unusual. You know, most people will um, have some symptoms, um, but I think that's fabulous. One of the things that actually I wanted to mention, and this makes me think about it, is that for most women, especially hot flashes, night sweats, they will get better over time. Most menopausal symptoms do too. And I think that the symptoms are most pronounced around the five years, around the time of the last menstrual cycle. In us brown women, that's a little bit longer. Studies have shown that we're more like seven to 10 years after that. But most of them will go away. 
Vaginal symptoms, though, and so I'm not putting you on the spot, caller, but uh, vaginal symptoms actually won't. They tend to get worse as time goes on. And when I mean vaginal symptoms, I mean vaginal dryness, maybe vaginal irritation that can really impact your ability to have and or enjoy sexual intercourse. And so that, though, typically does need to be treated, and it will get worse if we don't treat it. And so we can use easy things. Sometimes it's just vaginal moisturizers or lubricants actually with sex or or any type of penetration. Additional using uh, hormone replacement therapy like estrogen therapy, but only in the vagina that does not carry those same side effects that we are or risk factors that we were talking about. There's not an associated risk of breast cancer or stroke with vaginal estrogen. And so that's pretty safe for all women to use until they just don't care about sex or having a dry vagina anymore. Yeah, right okay. All right. Next up, we have Charlene. Charlene, are you there? Yes. Hey, Charlene. To welcome know, to the what show. What does a boggy uterus mean, and is it related to menopause? Typically, when a physician or radiologist talks about a boggy uterus, it's, it's the consistency of the uterus. The uterus is usually a firm muscle. And um, there's a condition called adenomyosis that some women will get. Adenomyosis affects the muscle wall of the uterus, and it can make the uterus feel pretty squishy. But in more particular, when women have adenomyosis, they often will have heavier, longer, more frequent periods, and often intense pain that's associated with that. And so endometri- adenomyosis, I'm sorry, is a big indication for hysterectomy at times. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Let's dive into some of those unmentionables. All right. Let's talk about, first and foremost, let's talk about preeclampsia. And what is preeclampsia and... I'll shoot that to Monica. Uh, Preeclampsia is a condition that pregnant women can get, typically occurs in the third trimester, and it can be, it can affect um, a woman's blood pressure so that their blood pressure goes up, can also affect uh, renal function and liver function as well. So some of the hallmark symptoms of preeclampsia in that third trimester of pregnancy are uh, severe headache, visual changes, swelling, and not just uh, swelling. It could be swelling in the face and the hands and the feet all over, but generalized swelling. And it's an obstetrical um, emergency. It's a condition that, if not treated, can lead to fetal growth restriction, intrauterine death, can result in seizure or epileptic activity in the in the patient uh, themselves. And so typically we try to get those, manage those patients until we can get them as close to their normal delivery date as possible. But often they need to be delivered early because of the potential sequela that can happen with preeclampsia. So women going into, you said that this occurs in the third trimester. So I'll shoot this one to Dr. Della maybe. Do you, once women get to that trimester, are they now doing, can they expect to be checked more regularly in terms of more blood pressure checks, having to come to the hospital more often? How does that look? Well, that's why we, oh, I'm sorry. That's why, yeah, that's why we have them, you know, normally if you've been pregnant, you come in initially, it's every four weeks. And then after you hit about 28 weeks, it's every two weeks. And at, at 36 weeks, it's every, every week. And so okay. each of those visits, you're getting a blood pressure check. 
and a urinalysis too, because we're looking to see if there's any protein in the urine. But we're also assessing a weight at each visit as well and uh, asking, especially once you are late second trimester, starting to go into the third trimester, asking regularly, are you having any headaches? Are you having any visual changes, any shortness of breath? All of those things that can be associated with preeclampsia. Okay. Dr. Della, you had mentioned earlier fibroids. And as we were talking about infertility, you said that this could play a role in it and that not all fibroids are the same. So for our listeners out there, what actually are fibroids? And when you said they're not, that they can impact it, how do they impact infertility? So fibroids are a growth of the muscle of the uterus. So, you know, the uterus itself really is a muscle. It does have a special lining on the inside, but fibroids are just a It's an extra growth of some of the muscular tissue. It is technically, you know, a tumor of sorts, but it's what we call benign or non-cancerous and non-worrisome and shouldn't really harm your health beyond the symptoms that the fibroids can cause. They are extraordinarily common. Globally, at least half of women have fibroids, more like almost 70% by the time one reaches menopause. That said, they are more common in women of color and they tend to occur earlier in women of color. So often there are a variety of symptoms that you might experience with fibroids. Some women will have no symptoms. They won't even know they have it. They may go their whole life and never know they had a fibroid. Some women, they might have some heavier bleeding with periods. Some people might feel kind of more fullness in the pelvic area or abdominal area as the fibroids grow. Some women might have pain with their periods. There are a variety of symptoms. There can be bladder symptoms like, you know, having issues with urination and things of that nature. That said, outside of those symptoms, for fibroids that grow in the middle area of the uterus, we call that the kind of the wall of the uterus, typically we don't think those have a major impact on fertility. It's possible if they get larger, particularly over four centimeters, that they may impact fertility. But if the fibroid is impinging on or protruding into the uterine cavity where the embryo implants, that can have a significant impact on the ability to conceive or to continue carrying the pregnancy. That's because the lining of the uterus is incredibly specialized and there are very unique signals that go out to inform the embryo where to implant and when to implant. And if there's a fibroid in the cavity, that can disrupt those signals and can also potentially take away some of the nutrition that the embryo needs in early embryonic life. All right. And the last question, I'm going to throw this to Monica. From one of our listeners online, they asked, at what age should a woman stop seeing a gynecologist? Well, I will start with, so with newer guidelines in terms of most women will come, we were always told to come to see your gynecologist annually. You need your pap smear annually, and over the age of 40, you need to get your mammogram. And so now the newer guidelines say that over the age of 30, really, if you've had normal pap smears, um, they can be done every five years, and that's if the HPV testing is negative, up until the age of 65. And if, at, if you've never had an abnormal pap smear, they've all been normal, your HPV testing has been negative, we can stop doing pap smears after the age of 65 because it's less likely that if nothing has changed in your risk factors that you would acquire cervical cancer, which is what we're screening for when we do a pap smear. 
That does not mean, though, because a lot of women will say, oh, well, if I don't have to have a pap smear, then I never need to see a gynecologist. But that's absolutely not true because we still want to be able to examine you because there are other things that can come up, vulvar cancers, ovarian cancer, breast cancer. So we still, even though we're not doing a pap smear, we still want you to come in on an annual basis so that we can check in and assess those other things and get your mammogram or your breast exam done. All right. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. All right. Excellent show out there, you guys. I'm going to give my, my amazing guest 15 seconds, closing remarks, something just to take away from, you have a message to let, the, let our listeners know, what would it be? And I'll, first up, I'll start here with Dr. Christmas. I think some of what we discussed today is a little bit doom or gloom. <laughs> and so hopefully it doesn't make anybody afraid of getting older. So I, I really want to impress upon the listeners that if you're experiencing things, if you're like our caller and you experience nothing negative, then that's fabulous. But if you are having symptoms, I don't want you suffering alone or please come in. We, there's, there's so many different options for managing things, including lifestyle changes too. So. All right. And Dr. Adela? I'm echo what Dr. Christmas said. It's really important to advocate for yourself and uh, find a physician that you feel comfortable with um, and always ask questions. Um, I would also say that it's important to just be aware. I Again, I don't want to be doom and gloom, but there is this impact of ovarian aging. We do have a limited reproductive window. And so if it's something that you're concerned about, speak up, speak to your doctor. Um, and if you're not getting the answers you need, you can always continue to look. And Dr. Christmas and I are always here um, to answer your questions. All right. Thanks for listening. I want to thank our executive producer, Susan Peters, the man behind the mask, Titus Williams, our technical producer, Miss Latiera, for streaming me on Facebook Live, and our amazing guest, Dr. Christmas, Dr. Adela, and you, our listeners. Next week, host Ed McDonald, The Overcomers, Game-Changing Lifestyle Choices. Take it easy, everybody. And for all those mothers out there, happy Mother's Day to you, and have an amazing, amazing day tomorrow. Mom, if you're listening, Happy Mother's Day to you. The Community Health Focus Hour is brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine.